recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to number episode number 17 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm is online at DuntroonLLP.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at DigitalBitsPR.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. You can also follow us on social media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And our account name is PR Law Podcast, all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. You can also subscribe on YouTube as well, if you'd prefer to listen that way. Uh, And you can support us on Patreon. That would mean a lot to us. You can find that on our website at PRLawPodcast.com. And you can click support the show. Uh, And we can also take your questions on legal and PR matters. Just tag us on social media with the hashtag. PR Law Pod, and we can answer that during the show. Uh, we have a pack show coming up today, including a, a very special guest to help us dive into some PR and crisis communications issues shortly. But before that, Ewan, what's what's happening with you? Oh, not too much, Cameron. It's a you know nice overcast, dreary day here, which is a you know a bit of a reprieve from the hot, sticky summer weather, which is always nice. How are, how are things you're in? Yeah, we're getting into typhoon season. We've had some uh, pretty big storms recently. And in a way, it's felt like we've had great weather for a while now. But I feel like with the way that COVID continues to spread and things seem to be getting worse everywhere, the weather finally sort of matches the uh, the feeling that's out there. Um, I don't know what's happening there, Ewan, but it just, I mean, this was a, a, an awful week for Hong Kong in so many ways. Uh, obviously, we've, we've, we had a, a 12th day today of COVID infections in the triple digits. Um, and we're now up to 34 deaths. And I mean, we had five deaths until, you know, June or early July. Uh, so most of those have come uh, recently. And you know, another thing, we closed restaurants. Finally, you mentioned, you asked uh, in the last show, you and like, why are they, why are they closing restaurants after 6 p.m., but open before 6 p.m.? Well, they yeah. did finally close them for all day. Uh, but you know what happened? I mean, you know Hong Kong, you and it's it's a crowded, hot, humid place. So the one day the restaurants were closed, people were getting takeout, but they had nowhere to eat. And I mean, there's seven million people here, and so they were spread out in parking lots and on stairs and all over the place in 34 degree, uh, you know, humidity, which is also not healthy. And so they backtracked on that policy within one day and decided to open restaurants again just because it was such a problem. Wow, isn't that funny? Yeah, I saw some of the some of the images. These sort of really, really wonderful juxtapositions of just people with sitting with their food in kind of these densely, densely populated urban zones, trying to find, you know, a, a moment of sanctuary to kind of enjoy their lunch before having to get back to the office out on the street corner, you know? Yeah, it is strange. And then aside from, I mean, COVID still getting worse here. Um, you know, this week, uh, we have a legislative, uh, our legislative council uh, election coming up in September. And um, this week, the Chinese government or the Hong Kong government decided to block 12 lawmakers from running for election. They were all pro-democracy sort of lawmakers. Not extreme. A lot of them are very, very middle of the road. Uh, But that was a huge blow. And then just a day or two later, uh, Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, decided to postpone the election by one year and the reason she says is COVID-19, she said it's a very difficult decision, but when you consider what's happened to this city over the last three, four months, uh, it was just another huge blow. And I think people are feeling quite low these days. Well, that must raise some interesting constitutional law questions, I would imagine. Does it Does it not? I mean, does, does Carrie Lam have the discretion to do that? Yeah, she does. Apparently she does. But you know what's interesting is, uh, you know, Donald Trump obviously put out that tweet saying in the U.S. that uh, maybe he would consider, you know, delaying the election. And the next day, his press secretary talked about how Hong Kong delaying the election was was bad for democracy and a step backwards and all these things. Uh, there was just no, no sense of hypocrisy there at all on the U.S. administration. Anyway, so how's it going there really quickly? You and in terms of COVID, I mean, are things things are getting worse there, too, I heard, or are we kind of turning it around? 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, you know, it's, it, it depends what day it is, Cam. Um, we're, we're sort of moving, we've moved into the next stage here in the province of Ontario and the, in the, in the Toronto area as of Friday, we've kind of opened up. So, you know, we're now able to sort of step into restaurants and enclosed spaces once again, which is, uh, which is exciting. I don't know how quickly that's going to take off. As you can imagine, you know, a lot of people are still very, very conscious about safety issues and, um, and going inside establishments. I think businesses are going to continue to suffer in that regard, despite the, the, the reopening. Um, we've seen some back to school plans introduced by the governments, which are, are raising all kinds of questions in terms of what's going to happen in terms of the education system in September. Are kids going to be returning full time to school? Or are they going to be, you know, introducing some hybrid um, schooling from home model? You know, it, it's just, there's still so much stuff up in the air and it really seems to be changing almost on a day by day basis. Yeah. And I know, you know, in the U.S., it's still uh, quite bad. It's continuing to spread. I saw that the U.S. had 1.9 million cases in July alone, uh, which is amazing. Um, We're not going to dwell on COVID too much, though, because we have a very special guest we're going to get to on the other side where we can dive into some real uh, PR issues that are affecting some of the companies out there today and hopefully get some uh, useful advice. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askus at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Okay, we'd like to welcome Edward Siegel to the PR and Law podcast. Uh, Edward's probably one of the most credentialed and experienced guests we've uh, we've had on the podcast. He's got 30 years of experience as a crisis management expert, CEO, public relations consultant, journalist, communications director, and press secretary. Uh, and he's also been PR consultant to more than 500 clients. And he's got three books out. And the newest one is called Crisis Ahead, 101 Ways to Prepare for and bounce back from disasters, scandals, and other emergencies. Welcome, Edward. Hi, it's great to be with you guys today. Great. I mean, the big issue which we, we talked about off the top is is COVID-19. Uh, and you and I have talked for several weeks now just about so, kind of the thornier issues that companies are having to deal with in terms of dealing with their customers uh, and their, their partners and their staff and their shareholders. Um, and it, it's been difficult because there isn't a lot of solid information out there uh, in, in a lot of these areas. So, I mean, how should companies approach this and who do you think has sort of done it right so far? Well, in terms of approaching it, the first thing to do is to always pay attention to what's happening. You don't want to be surprised by the latest news or developments or current of events with this uh, international uh, public health emergency. But as you're paying attention, you should also pay attention to the right people. Uh, From my perspective, the last person or last people you want to take health advice from are from uh, public officials who don't have any scientific uh, or, or medical background. So always listen to the data, listen to the scientists, um, listen to the people who know the science and the research and the data, and they're always the best ones to follow. It's fine when the politicians are repeating what the scientists and health officials say, but you're never, never going to find a, it was being incredibly rare to find a public, a, uh, a scientist who's just going to pair it with the politicians say. So consider the source and then act accordingly. And the other piece of advice is don't wait when you know there's a problem, when you know there's an issue, when you know how the pandemic or any other crisis is going to affect your company or your organization, take steps to address it now. Every second that you delay in responding to the crisis is just going to postpone it and will uh, make it even more difficult for you to deal with it effectively. Yeah. And you mentioned there um, taking advice from medical professionals and not politicians. And I think one of the difficult things, I think, particularly in the United States, um, well, even the, the World Health Organization early on said, um, you know, that, the, that masks were questionable in terms of whether they were effective in, in preventing the spread of the disease or the virus. And even before that, there was some question whether it was even, you know, transmissible between humans in the, in the very 
very early days. So because it's such a new thing, you know, we've seen even even the professionals kind of have to change the advice from time to time. And I guess, like, how do companies deal with that? Because there have been people quite critical of the government and of, of other leaders as a result of these sort of changing rules. Well, as in this crisis, as with any other crisis, uh, things can change moment to moment. New facts, new figures, new data uh, comes to light that was not known. And part of the strategy I recommend, recommend to my clients in dealing with a crisis is to be flexible. And what was true or false the other day might be true or false, might be the opposite uh, today or next week or next month. So I'm really not surprised that uh, we've learned new things about uh, the coronavirus crisis because it's the first time we ever had to deal with it. And, and the research and the attention by the medical community and scientists, it was very intense. And the more they did the research and found out and looked at uh, the cases and uh, the, the, the people who had been infected, the people who died, uh, the more they, they were able to learn. But in the United States, we have a very special challenge in what dealing with this continuing crisis, because we still don't know how many uh, people in this country have the disease. Unlike other countries around the world, they've done a much better job uh, testing people, uh, enforcing uh, what is known to be true to help uh, combat the disease or prevent people from getting it in terms of social distancing and uh, and masks and things like that. But in the United States, it's almost like a free-for-all. Um, it's, it's every person for themselves. There's no guidance, mm-hmm. there's no national direction, and there's no common agreed upon set of facts. So uh, it's really not the, right, not the right way to address a crisis, to fight the crisis, and we really need to pay more attention to the successes of other countries around the world for how they've been uh, dealing with this pandemic. Yeah, I think, you know, um, communications expert or not, I think people have, you know, clearly seen the U.S. has definitely had some some problems um, in managing this compared to, to some of the other countries that have, um, you know, had a better handle on it. Um, you know, one of the other things that you had mentioned um, on your podcast, um, the Crisis Ahead podcast, um, we will put a link to, to the show in the show notes, um, is you talked about some of the layoffs happening. So we know, I think it's 40 million uh, Americans uh, have been laid off as a result of COVID-19 and just the challenges, you know, in terms of companies actually delivering the layoff message to the employees when a lot of employees are not coming into work. And so that might have to be done at a distance or over a Zoom call. And maybe it's not even, uh, you know, one-on-one. Um, and, and you mentioned Weight Watchers as one case study. I'm just wondering if you can shed some light on sort of how Weight Watchers managed it and what is the best way for companies to uh, to do this? Well, because so many people are now well, working remotely and not coming to the office or can't come to the office or won't come to the office, um, Zoom uh, and other video platforms um, have uh, become uh, the uh, go-to way to help communicate um, with employees about what's happening in their company. And also because of the economy, so many people, I think we're up now to 50 million people in the U.S. have uh, been laid off or furloughed and are seeking unemployment insurance. Tens of millions of people are being have lost their jobs and they found out about it because they were asked to sit in on an emergency Zoom call. And that's understandable in terms of uh, sharing information and of letting people know. But you really have to have some sensitivity when you're using Zoom or any technology to deliver news, especially bad news, uh, to uh, employees. You should uh, couch the information in terms of the big picture. Why is this happening to the company? Why are we having to make this difficult decision? Uh, How is it going to affect you? Um, Is there any hope at all for uh, hiring you back or taking you off a furlough? Uh, It's always important, if you can, to give people hope when you have to deliver the bad news. But don't give them false hope, uh, only if it's possible. You don't want to lead them on. You don't want to deceive them. You don't want to raise up their hopes and then have to dash it later on. So it's really important. And also for everyone who has to give people the bad news, um, there for the grace of God might might be going you. Uh, The managers of today can be the unemployed managers tomorrow. So treat people right today. 
uh, because you might be on the receiving end of bad news later on as this pandemic continues. Yeah, you make a very good point about putting the the, the issue in sort of a broader context um, of COVID-19 and then providing, you know, the information. And on your podcast, you mentioned even maybe having, um, you know, an, an FAQ or, or Q&A list uh, of information to, to help um, answer some questions the staff might have. And I think it's really just... I think I think staff feel just more respected in that way because uh, it looks like the company put some time into providing as much information as they could and 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 talked about sort of the process they go through to get to this sort of sad result. Um, but at least it's done sort of in a in a respectful way. Yes, you should make it as easy as possible to share the information, whether it's good or bad or just a status report. Um, FAQs on the website, the text messaging, uh, even the old-fashioned uh, conference uh, conference phone calls. Uh, getting the word out, uh, having a, uh, if you need it, the confidential information, uh, posting it on the website and a password-protected uh, page on the site. But the more you are public or the more you share with the bad news, the more likely it is that people that who you may not thought would ever care or learn about the news, uh, they might learn about it as well. So when you're delivering bad news or even status reports, remember you may be talking to or writing to or being heard or seen by uh, multiple audiences. And that's what happened with uh, Weight Watchers. They gave the bad news and people were really upset on how they got the news and what was said during the Zoom call. And then they started posting messages on social media to complain about how in their views they were so inhumanely uh, treated. So uh, be careful with the message that you're giving your employees. Be careful with the updates and be very careful how you are couching the news. Try to be human. Try to stay human. These are incredibly tough, challenging times for everybody in an organization. And when you're giving the bad news through Zoom or any other way, be compassionate, be understanding, uh, stay human and put things in perspective. And if you can give them hope, not false hope, but legitimate hope, try to do that as well. Yeah, I just want to, Cam, I just want to echo what Edward is saying, because I think it's fantastic, fantastic advice for for any lawyers, employment lawyers who might be listening to our show. Um, you know, as as everyone knows, uh, our the reputation of our profession is such that we're often not uh, perceived as the most sympathetic of individuals. And I think it's sorry, are you referring to law or PR people? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was referring to to my people, to the lawyers. Okay. Perhaps clarify. It is true among, among your people as well. Um, Yeah. You know, the tone is key and I've had to draft a lot of termination letters over the last few weeks and months. And, you know, what Edward says is really, really, really wise wise counsel. Uh, You have to get the tone right. This is a very, very difficult time for a lot of employees and employers um, on both sides of the fence. And if the language isn't conveyed in a compassionate manner, particularly given that the vast majority of these layoffs really have nothing to do with the with the conduct of the employees, of their ability to come to work each and every day and do a good job. It's completely unrelated to that. And that that aspect of the message has to be key. It really has to be conveyed that this isn't about you uh, or any inadequacies on your part. This is an unprecedented challenge that we're facing as a company. And unfortunately, these are we're, we're having to make some very, very tough decisions. If the tone isn't right, you're going to run into all kinds of problems as an employer. Reputationally, it could have some, some long-term effects if you have employees who are out there who've lost their jobs, who are speaking negatively about the company. You really have to focus on, on getting that tone precise, which can be a very, very challenging thing to do at the best of times. And one of the problems, um, you know, as you were talking there, Ewan, is that, yeah, these these Zoom uh, meetings can be recorded and they can be shared on social media. And so you've got you've got that that risk um, as well. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, topics actually I want to I want to get to. I know we have um, a small amount of time, but um, Edward, one of the things I want to ask about really is some of the companies that are really in the spotlight right now who are kind of under the gun. And I think one of those um, is Facebook. And it's had kind of a, a bad run of news ever since the Cambridge Analytical scandal uh, back uh, following the 2016 election. 
Uh, and then on, it seemed to be one misstep after another. And now there is an advertising boycott, uh, or at least some advertisers have decided to boycott Facebook. Uh, what is your assessment of sort of how Facebook has, has handled their communications? Um, and what, what, uh, how can companies manage things like boycotts, uh, threatened or actually implemented? Well, when it comes to Facebook or any other company that has had a series of crises, um, I think it's a good example of what I call the two law of holes for crisis management. The first law of holes is that if you ever find yourself in a hole, stop digging and get out of the hole. The <laughs> second law of holes is don't fall back into that hole and don't big, don't dig yourself another hole. And Facebook is a really great example of a company that's violating those two law of holes. They've had crisis after crisis after crisis. And I'm really surprised because of a company of that size, importance, influence, and reach. Um, I would have thought that they have figured this out. It, I, I understand if a company has a crisis, and, it, it's, and it's great if they learn from it. And you should always learn from your crisis. But if you keep making different mistakes, then something's wrong with the culture. Something's wrong with your uh, view of reality. And something's wrong with your ability to forecast and come up with the worst case scenarios of what could possibly go wrong in our com company. And how do we prevent that from happening? So I think it's a continuing textbook case um, of what not to do in a crisis. Uh, they keep making mistakes. They keep getting out of holes and keep falling into new holes. In terms of the boycott, uh, the boycott is a great way uh, for any industry or any organization uh, to force them to do the right thing if they're not doing it on their own. And nothing speaks to uh, a company that as a loss of revenue or profits. Uh, if they're going to lose money, that's going to get their attention. And if they haven't done the right thing before, uh, the losing money every day, that's going to help get their attention and hopefully do the right thing. So we haven't seen any move yet on Facebook, but the, the more money they lose and the more companies and organizations that decide to boycott, uh, not by advertising from the company, uh, the more attention it's going to get and the more likely it is going to have a continuing effect. Uh, here in Washington, D.C., we had a great example of that when the National Football League team, formerly known as the Redskins, mm -hmm. uh, the owner, Dan Snyder, had refused for years uh, to change the name because many people rightly considered it to be uh, an offensive racist name, but he refused to change the name. Then in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis, there was a new call to change the name. He said no, but then the major sponsors, FedEx and other major companies of, of, that sponsored the team said, if you don't change, we're, we're taking our money and using, taking it elsewhere and we won't sponsor you anymore. Well, guess what? Dan Snyder changed his mind. Mm -hmm. They dropped the name with a matter of days. And now they have a placeholder name called the Washington's NFL team. Mm -hmm. So that's a good example on a local level, on an international level of the impact the boycott or the threat of a boycott can have to help uh, make a dis help encourage a company to do the right thing if they're not doing it on their own. You know, I, I wonder if it's an example of Facebook's market strength to some degree that this is, you know, continued or the, the bad press has continued literally for, for years now. I mean, we're looking at f four or five years of, um, like you say, scandal after scandal um, and, and the boycott. And when the boycott was first kind of floated as an idea, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was quoted as saying, you know, they'll, they'll come back. And, you know, it is a, a, a cynic could look at this and go, yeah, I mean, Facebook is still the number one way, I mean, maybe debatable with Google, um, to, to, to target your advertising and your marketing spend and to access, uh, you know, potential customers or clients. And so do you think that these companies are getting to the point where even this sort of outside pressure and even sponsor pressure to a degree, uh, do, do they have enough power to dislodge how Facebook does business? Well, there's always strength in numbers, and the more uh, other companies and organizations join the boycott, the better. However, those companies who've already said we're not going to support you with advertising anymore, they're in one way, they're painting themselves into the corner. What happens if Facebook uh, refuses to change your policies and the companies say, okay, we're going to advertise for, uh, with you, we're going to give you our money again? That has the, 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 the chance of the real opportunity of uh, turning those companies that are boycotting now, if they go back before there's been changes, they're hypocrites. 
and they will have their own crisis to explain to the public, their their employees, uh, their customers, why they change their mind if Facebook hasn't changed theirs. So be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you do. You have to think through the consequences of your decisions and your actions. Uh, What happens if it works? Okay, that's good. But what happens if it doesn't work? And what are you going to do um, if you don't get your way and the changes you're demanding uh, don't come to pass? So be very careful. And you need a strategy for doing the right thing, but you also need a strategy for um, if there's problems in achieving your goals. Yeah, and we're sort of picking up from that point. Something you'd said initially about following the science and the data. I was curious, how do you balance what the science and the data is saying with, you know, the public perception or general consensus? And, you know, more specifically, I think it was in um, in an earlier episode, episode 13, we had talked about United Airlines and their communications director who effectively came out and said that, you know, social distancing on an airplane is effectively a PR scam. And that, you know, they were going to start loading their flights and filling them and not leaving that middle seat empty. And he cited a bunch of a bunch of the scientific data and evidence to sort of support that position. But publicly, there was some backlash and it didn't seem to jive with what consumers thought was safe. So I'm just I'm, I'm curious, how do you I mean, how do you advise a company in terms of having to balance the science with the public perception when the two ends may not may not actually meet somewhere in the middle. Well, the real issue is what's more important, safety or profits? Are you going to do everything, no matter what the law says, no matter what the science says, to try to make as much money as you can and to stay into business? Or are you going to be incredibly prudent and do everything you can to uh, protect uh, the public and, and your customers? Uh, you can't argue with your customers. You know, customers are always right. The customers are paying attention to what the scientists are saying. Um, the scientists are believing uh, the, the the people are, are believing the scientists much more than the politicians. There was a recent poll at, at this, about almost 75% of the public um, believe what Dr. Anthony Fauci is saying. And a fraction of that believe what the President of the United States is saying. And people have to consider the source of the information and why people are saying what they're saying. I would say, well, of course, United's going to say it's safe because they want to stay in business and they want to make money. And, you know, they've, they've got to bring customers back. But the public is reading the same science, the same data, the same research, the same warnings and the forecasts. So you can't fool the public and you shouldn't try to fool the public because that's going to blow back. And the problem with ignoring the science, as we've seen, for those uh, uh, states and cities and companies that are ignoring the warnings, they are playing a role, to some extent, of uh, resurgence of the pandemic. And by ignoring the data, by ignoring social distancing laws and regulations and guidance, by uh, ignoring mask requirements, uh, we're doing the best possible job of making this crisis go on and on and on. And whatever, whether you're an airline or a train or a bus company or any form of transportation, any business, to ignore the science, to ignore what we know works to help prevent the disease and help prevent the spread, uh, to ignore that just for the sake of making a book, uh, a buck, then I think the customers are going to think less of you for doing that. And if you're because of you're ignoring the science, you're contributing to the uh, extension of this pandemic. Um, that's not good PR for you, and uh, it, it's a wrong thing to do on a moral basis as well. So pay attention to the science and follow the science. Do what you can to stay in business, but I don't think you should do everything you can to make a buck while putting your customers at risk. And that's exactly what United and other companies are doing when they're ignoring the science. In a way, this is quite simple. It is just, you know, do the right thing. Be, uh, a, you know, a company that that does follow the science, that follows the rules, that tries to keep people safe. Um, I think it's the companies that are trying to sort of find find shortcuts uh, that, that that get into into some trouble. Um, one of the other big issues this week was was the um, tech CEOs were were in Washington uh, to testify uh, about their accused monopoly status in in the sectors in which they operate. Uh, so so the four tech CEOs were there: Facebook, uh, Alphabet, um, Apple, and there was one other one. Twitter, I think, wasn't it? it was Twitter? Amazon. Twitter was the last. Oh, it was Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. 
Amazon. So, I mean, I, I don't want to get in particularly to what they were saying, but last week on, on the podcast, we were talking about getting speeches ready for a CEO or for a politician or, or for some executive that you might be working for, or maybe even yourself. And like, what is the best way in a situation like that, where there's going to be very tough questioning, or it could be a, a you know, a press conference, um, you know, or an earnings call somewhere where you might face difficult questions following your speech. How do you tackle that? Like, what, what, what advice do you give or what approach do you think is best to take to deal with that kind of situation? Practice, practice, practice. You should prepare yourself for not just the good questions that you're likely to get from your supporters on a congressional committee, for example, but the worst case scenarios, the meanest, most negative, upside down questions you could, you just don't want to answer, but be prepared for them to uh, be asked. And you need to think it through and come up with an appropriate response for every possible negative question in addition to the great softball questions uh, that you might get from uh, your friends and supporters on on a congressional committee. You know, in politics, uh, in the presidential debates, they have practice sessions with uh, staff or others um, uh, playing, uh, playing the role of an opposition candidate and asking the hard, mean questions. Uh, you should do the same thing if you're getting prepared for a congressional committee or appearance before uh, any government uh, organization or entity. It's also important to do your homework and do your research about the people who are likely going to be asking you those questions. What are their backgrounds? What are their politics? Do they have any access to grind? Uh, and uh, do as much research as you can. And then uh, practice the questions, practice the answers, uh, record yourself and be as objective as you can or have others give you uh, sound advice about what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, and uh, strengthen your, your your performance so you're doing the best uh, possible job. But remember, you're speaking to m- multiple audiences. It's just not the people in the room you have to talk to. It's the uh, people who are there uh, watching it uh, on social media or on television. It's the reporters who are reporting it. How is what you say going to be reported or heard uh, by the media and those who uh, watch and hear you uh, from a distance? So think through what you're saying, how you're saying it, what the impact is going to be, and what the follow-up questions are going to be. You say A, B, and C, but what's the end? What, what's the follow-up question? And many times people will get themselves into more trouble answering the questions than the original statement. So whether it's dealing with the press, dealing with a congressional committee, or any government body, practice, practice, practice. You know, this is one of the things I actually like to do is put together those questions. You know, when we're preparing executives for, for, for facing the media, you know, going through and finding the most difficult and pointed questions that, that could potentially be asked. Because you're right, airing those and going through that process helps a lot uh, when it happens for real. I mean, this is all great for, for, for content uh, and preparation on that end. In terms of like nerves and anxiety and, you know, I know some people start sweating when they're talking. Are there ways to, I mean, we know that some CEOs are very, very charismatic and, and are very good at speaking off the cuff, uh, you know, not looking at notes, that kind of thing. While others really do need to look very carefully uh, at the written word while they're delivering a speech. Is there any advice you have for sort of keeping people feeling calm, feeling loose, feeling confident and that kind Kind of thing. Yes. One word, breathe. Yes. So many people forget to breathe <laughs> when they're in a crisis situation. <laughs> breathe in and out, in and out. Repeat as necessary because mm-hmm. the more you breathe, you take deep breaths. You don't want to hyperventilate, but you should pace yourself. There's a, a great uh, exercise uh, I uh, found out about years ago uh, f- to help calm yourself and to steady your, your, your nerves. Count to 10. And for every count, you you take a breath in, you hold it for 10 seconds, and then you slowly release your breath over a period of 10 seconds. So over those 30 seconds, it's a great, and you keep repeating that for five or six times or longer than necessary, your body reflex will start to slow down. You'll start to calm. You'll start to be able to collect yourself. And it's a great way to center yourself, to uh, make sure you're not getting uh, overly excited and to try to be as calm as possible. Other people like to take long walks or do jogging or exercises or push-ups. Whatever makes sense for you, whatever will work for you, 
there's a lot of good advice uh, from doctors and healthcare professionals and psychologists uh, as well on how to study yourself and how to calm your nerves. So don't wait until you're in a crisis situation to find out what's going to work for you in a crisis situation or a stressful situation. Take the steps as soon as you can uh, to practice uh, good health, uh, to practice, uh, you know, not getting overly excited and then practicing some of these different exercises to see what will work uh, best for you before you enter or when you find yourself in the middle of a stressful or high pressure situation. Wow, that is that is great advice. Yeah, that's something I think I'll I'll, I'll try myself probably uh, when I'm in that situation. I, um, I've been doing the breathing exercises uh, while while you were chatting. Very, <laughs> I feel much calmer actually. It's nice. Don't forget don't forget to exhale. However. Yes, <laughs> that's that's a key part. Um, there, there's one last thing I really wanted to to ask you, Edward, because I know that you've had you know you've had a, a great long career in this field, and and you know so much has changed in the last thirty years since you've been doing this. I mean, we're in the age now of, of Twitter and we talked about Zoom earlier and things going viral. And I mean, even this pandemic has just seemed to open up all kinds of new, new, new issues. I mean, how have you kept up with all of this and what has it been like for you to adjust and adapt to all of these changes and still be able to, you know, really provide valuable counsel uh, after all of these years? I'd love to know your secret. Well, the secret is to pay attention Never assume what's in today is going to be in tomorrow or the technology that relied on last week is going to be the one that we uh, turn to next month. Uh, the technology keeps changing. Uh, you know, it, consider the invention of the telegraph and what it was like to be a journalist uh, uh, in the old West. And you had to get your stories out by, by telegraph. Uh, and then you had the telephone and then you had radio and tell it it's all every generation um, has new technology uh, to contend with, to learn about, um, and, and, and to understand. But the way technology has been working uh, the last decade or so, it's a new technology almost every year. I remember uh, when MySpace used to be the way to communicate on the Internet and whatever happened to MySpace, and then there was FaceTime, and, and now we have Facebook. And never assume that the technology that we're using now is going to be what we'll be um, using in the future. And uh, part of my secret for, for surviving and thriving in my various careers, my various iterations, is that I like to learn new things. I'm always on the lookout for what's going to be uh, new tomorrow, what's new today, and how I can adjust and learn that new technology so I can do the best possible job for myself and my careers and in the public relations arena, in uh, uh, crisis management, uh, the different forms of communications and technology, it's absolutely essential to know what works and what doesn't, what's going to do a good job for myself and my clients, and to learn how to do it as quickly as possible. You don't want to be the last person uh, in your company or in your industry to know how a particular technology is working because everyone's been using it for, for a long time. So you have to be current, you have to be up to date, and also by showing others that you're current and up to date, that sends a good positive message to others that you, you know what you're doing and helps ensure that you have your credibility and that you're at the top of the game. Um, so always pay attention and keep up with what's happening. Just to, just to touch on what, what you just said, Edward, because something that really resonated with me is keeping up with the technology. And, you know, this is something that a lot of employers really, really struggle with. They're, they're not often as, as nimble and quick as they certainly need to be in certain circumstances. And you often see that reflected in the agreements, in the employment agreements of a lot of employees. You know, often I'm going through draft employment agreements that an employer has asked me to look at and, and update. And I'm looking at things like return of, you know, company property or confidential information. And I'm still seeing references to disks like floppy disks, as if, you know, anyone has touched a floppy disk at any point in the last, I, gosh, I don't even, I don't even know how long um, that, you know, companies have to be conscious of the technology that their employees are using on a day-to-day -day basis. They need to receive good counsel in that regard to make sure that their agreements are up to date and to make sure that their company culture is up to date in that regard. Because if they don't, you know, I mean, I guess to use Edward's term, they're going to, they're going to find themselves finding in falling into a hole that they probably will not be able to get out of. 
Well, just on that last point, I believe it was Tesla that got really uh, concerned and upset that so many of their employees were uh, sharing uh, private and confidential uh, information about the company with reporters and others um, through through email. And so Tesla decided we're going to send a warning to all the employees to stop using email and sharing company secrets. Well, guess what? Someone leaked that email <laughs> as well. So <laughs> be very careful uh, with the technology that you have, uh, the, the, the technology your, uh, your clients are using, how your employees are using it. Do your best to train your employees and everyone else uh, about the importance of uh, co- keeping in confidential information, uh, private and confidential, the uh, effect or the, the consequences of releasing it can be. And the bottom line is, if you're uh, if you're afraid that the information is going to get out and hurt you by sharing it with others, don't share it with others. Find a way of providing it is safe, secure, because uh, bad information gets leaked. It could damage your image, your reputation. If you're publicly traded, it could hurt your stock price. So there's a lot of reasons to be careful about the technology you're using and to take every step you can to protect it and to make sure everyone who's using technology is doing it safely as well. Fantastic. Yes, Edward, I, uh, it's been absolutely great having you on the show. Actually, I have so many subjects and things that I would like to, to, to ask you about. So I hope you can come back and, and, and join us on the show again sometime. It's, it's really been great having you. I've enjoyed the conversation and I'd love the opportunity to continue it sometime in the future. Absolutely great. Thank you so much to Edward Siegel. And you can listen to his podcast as well to pick up on some of the tips uh, that he gave us today and some new ones as well. And his podcast is called Crisis Ahead, the Crisis Ahead podcast. And you can pick up his book that was just released. It is called Crisis Ahead, 101 Ways to Prepare for and Bounce Back from Disasters, Scandals, and Other Emergencies. Uh, We will have a link to the book in the show notes if you're interested. Thank you again, Edward. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. What a great discussion. What a, what an absolute pleasure to have Edward on the show. That was that was really, really fantastic and insightful. I wish I could have access to him almost on a day-to-day <laughs> basis doing what I do for a living. I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah, I think we could have had the whole hour with Edward, actually. So that's why we're going to have to get him on again sometime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to talk about not not the the sexiest of subjects this week, Cameron, but but no less pertinent to uh, to what's going on. And that's structuring employment agreements. You know, we, we've talked about this before, how it's critical that when employees are signing new employment agreements, that they have someone review them, they have counsel ideally look at it and go through it with a fine tooth comb. But particularly in the age of COVID, I think this is even more important. And the reason I say that is I think we're going to see some fundamental shifts in the way that employment agreements are, are being drafted. And I just kind of wanted to go through, you know, a, a few of those, those points very, very quickly. So, you know, for example, sick policies, you know, sick time policies right now, they're not sufficiently addressing a lot of the considerations related to, to COVID. So, you know, I think COVID and quarantine periods will have to be um, expressly addressed in those agreements. Uh, Time off. This is going to be the big one. Most agreements, as as it stands now, they don't have the ability to permit temporary layoffs. Really, the temporary layoff is something that's reserved for more seasonal workers or um, workers that, that are in kind of large large factory factories that have you know production lines that sort of ebb and flow. I think we're going to see a fundamental shift there where employers and I you know I've already drafted some agreements to this effect, they're going to start to squeeze in some provisions and languages language that permits them to temporarily lay off their employees without pay. Um, in case, you know, a, a pandemic like situation occurs again. Uh, and as you can imagine, that's going to have some pretty significant implications to the employee 
particularly if they're not even aware that a provision like that exists in the agreement. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I have so many questions about this. Um, so, so you're saying that basically because of COVID-19 and the impact that we've seen from COVID-19, particularly on employers and employees, that actual employment agreements are being changed uh, going forward to incorporate some sort of new language or new provisions to deal with uh, something like COVID-19, like this disease specifically, or, or in general, in case of a pandemic, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. Precisely. Oh. And, uh, I mean, I, I can tell you firsthand, I've already, um, I've, I've been drafting language, some language to this effect, um, in, in agreements over the last, last few weeks and frankly, last, last month or two. So, so yeah, it, it's, it's happening. I mean, you would think again, uh, I'm not Pollyannish here, but in a just world, you would think that actually there would be more provisions to actually protect employ employees, uh, in light of the potential health hazards and other things as a result of a pandemic. But as you're talking about, I sense that it's actually the other way uh, that we're going. So I want to, I want to ask about the sick policies. So you said, you know, like right now, I don't know what they are, but I assume, you know, you can take a certain number of days off with an illness. W what exactly is the change for COVID? Does is it, does it impose some sort of limit or, or how is that working? Well, I think we're going to need, we're going to need some clarification and explicit language that speaks to quarantine periods being ex ex sort of expressly addressed in the agreement, right? So, you know, typically you'd have, hey, if you're not feeling well, you take time off. I mean, you're sort of typical broad um, sick leave provision, but there's nothing really at this point that sort of addresses a quarantine, right? Um, so you could require language, for example, if somebody becomes sick in, 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 as a result of, of the pandemic or a, or a subsequent pandemic, or if you need to impose sick days to keep people out of, out of a, a workplace environment, something to that effect, there's going to need to be some expressed language that speaks to quarantine periods, because that's just not something that, you know, employment council have turned their minds to because we haven't, we haven't had to deal with this before. So yeah, there's going to be some revisions there for sure. And the quarantine thing, like that literally affects me directly because, you know, I'm in Hong Kong. If you, if you land in Hong Kong, you're under a 14 day quarantine automatically. Um, well, I mean, there's a lot of places I could fly to here on the weekend. And there's some countries where there is no quarantine rule now because they've got a hold of the, or they've dealt with the disease quite well, the virus. But if I come back to Hong Kong, a 14-day quarantine period means I can't go to work for two full weeks. And obviously, my employer is not going to tolerate that because it would be my choice to leave and come back. I, I know what the rules are. But I can see how this is, yeah, it's going to be a problem because there's no there's no language around this. Like, basically, I'm stuck and they can sort of demand what they want uh, just because of that. And then I guess you and on, on the time off one, um, like right now you said there's no temporary layoffs in most employment agreements. Um, so, so that's going to be added now that there's going to be these clauses sort of in a template that says, actually, you can be let go or furloughed. Yeah, I suspect there probably will be. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the laws it stands in Ontario is, you know, you can't temporarily lay off an employee unless you have sort of express language within the employment agreement that permits you to do so. And again, typically, this is not language you would see in most employment agreements outside of some of those contexts that we talked about, seasonal work and, and, and what have you. But yeah, I mean, I think employers are going to want to have some some guarantees and assurances that should something like this rear its ugly head again, they're going to have the flexibility to be able to say, OK, sorry, guys, we got to lay you off temporarily now and we have the ability to do so within, you know, whatever um, relevant employment legislation it sort of governs in, in your jurisdiction, but that we have that flexibility to do it and we can do it. Um, without having to pay you. So we're not firing you, of course, but we're going to temporarily lay you off in an unpaid context. And yeah, I think we are going to see a lot more employment agreements that that permit employers to do that. I do think it's easy to sort of cast the employer in a negative light as a result of this. I mean, but but in reality, the employer is also hurt badly by the pandemic. I mean, most of them are. There's certain businesses that are th they're thriving as a result. But in general, you know, every, everyone is suffering uh, from this. Um, but it would be good if there was, I almost feel like this does also in a way, and I can't believe I'm saying this, require some sort of maybe 
government policy or support or something. Because, I mean, what we end up with, and we're seeing this sort of in the U.S. now, is that the pandemic happens. It's it's not someone's fault in the U.S. You know, uh, I mean, you could make an argument to some degree, but um, and and the business gets hurt. The employees have to get laid off. The business might go to business. I mean, everyone loses, and so. Dealing with this at a higher level, I think, is also something that's going to have to be looked at in the future. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we've we've already seen some government intervention uh, in in this regard. And again, I don't want to get into the the, the sort of nitty gritty and technicalities of what governments have done, but um, we have seen we have seen some intervention to provide employers with a little more flexibility in terms of what they can do vis-a-vis their their employees in a pandemic situation, I think we're going to see inevitably a lot more intervention and legislation to sort of expand those provisions. And I think we're also going to see an expansion of some employee protections as well in a pandemic situation, because, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. As much as on one hand, you have employers who have been in real dire straits financially and haven't had a great deal of choice in, in terms of laying off a lot of these employees. At the same time, we have seen employers take advantage of these luxuries and sort of laying off em- employees that perhaps they, you know, they weren't particularly fond of um, for, for extended periods of time without having to pay them. So uh, undoubtedly, whenever, whenever there's sort of some sort of intervention or, or legislative intervention, there's going to be those that take advantage on both sides of the fence. And that's always going to be a difficult thing to try and regulate and control. So, I mean, what is your advice then for, for, I mean, I think for employers, I mean, this makes sense. You should have these provisions in uh, just for, for risk management for your business. Um, for employees, though, if someone's starting a new job uh, later this year or next year, I mean, should they look for this? Is there anything that you would advise them to, to, to raise or to do? Yeah, I mean, you know, the simple the simple solution is again sit down with counsel and go through it. So you have somebody who has turned their mind to these sorts of issues that can go through them step by step with you. And I mean, again, we haven't even talked about you know other issues. Vacation time is sort of one that has always been present, even in a pre COVID context, that a lot of employees weren't consciously aware of, and that's that the employer fundamentally gets to determine when you take your vacation time. They can impose upon you when you take that vacation time. And we've seen a lot of employers do that in the COVID context as well, um, saying, look, we're, we're, we're facing financial hardship right now. We're not really in a position to keep everybody on the payroll. So we're, we're imposing upon you to take your vacation, your three weeks or your four weeks. We want you to exhaust that vacation time and do it now. And they have the discretion to do that. And that's been around for for some time, and a lot of employees hadn't turned their mind to that either until their employers in in, in the wake of COVID started telling them you have to take your vacation time now. Um, you know, and the other issue, Cam, that we're going to have to look at in agreements are work from home policies, right? What's the language of the work from home policy? And I think that this is really something employers have to turn their minds to when drafting employment agreements as well. How are you going to structure those policies? Because this isn't really something employers have turned their minds to in a lot of contexts either, where going to work Monday to Friday, nine to five has been the norm. Well, what happens when you can't do that? When do your employees work? How do they work? Um, What equipment do they have to have available in their home offices? Who's providing that equipment? Who's paying for that equipment? I mean, all of these sorts of issues all of a sudden become really, really pertinent when you know your workforce is going to have to just pick up and start working from home for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's going to be a big change. And we, we, we talked about sort of the, the impact of technology just on the workplace in general. Um, and I think that's going to be a, a, a big influence on sort of how this, how this shakes out. Um, anything else on this, you and you want to, you want to, you want to add? No, I, I really, I know we're pressed for time. So, you know, let's, let's move on. Perhaps we can touch on it uh, again briefly next week. Yes, for sure. Okay. Um, so into, into the recommended stuff this week. And, you know, I, I don't have um, a huge one to mention here. Just a, a couple of things that I, I, I were quite sad, I think, this week. Not that 2020 needs any more sadness, but um, uh, Wilford Brimley and Regis Philbin both passed away uh, this week. Um, I don't know if our listeners are going to be very familiar with them. I assume, I assume they are at least Regis Philbin, I think in particular, and I did read uh, one write up about him. I, I do think he was, uh, you know, 
a very groundbreaking person on television. He does hold the Guinness Book of World Records for the most hours on television, uh, which is a big deal. And his career spanned from the 50s up until just a few years ago, which is absolutely incredible. Um, you know, I think even when we talk about communications, his way of communicating, the way he spoke, the way he sort of smiled and laughed and was able to do small talk and joke around. It was very, very endearing. And I think he was one of the very few people in the United States who who was beloved by nearly everyone. Uh, he had that going for him. So um, there was a, a really good write-up on, on his life and his career that I will put in the show notes. I think it's it's worth reading if you want to read about somebody who really, I think, made it made a difference for a lot of people. Yeah, he just had that uncanny ability to sit down with anyone and make it appear as if they'd been kind of old friends, you know, had known each other for for years. And that's such a rare gift, even in television personalities, people who who do that sort of thing for a living. It's such a rare gift, but it's definitely one he had in spades. And the other one, uh, there is an article called Real Karen's Struggle with Name. And uh, Karen has a lot of meaning now, especially in the United States, but elsewhere as well. It's almost a pejorative. Um, and people who actually have the name Karen, obviously, uh, are not appreciating this very much. And so there's a dive into that in the New York Times. It is, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but at the same time, it looks like, you know, to some degree, this can be kind of an annoyance and kind of a problem for, for, for women who do have the name Karen. And what I didn't know, Ewan, is that it was the third most popular girl's name, I believe in 1964. And it's nowhere now, even in the last several years, it's been absolutely nowhere on the list. I mean, it's completely gone away, um, which is quite interesting because I, I have known a lot of Karens over the years, um, real Karens, not the ones that we're seeing in viral videos. Uh, right, but that's, but that's right. also yeah, something. It dropped, I thought, I think I must've seen something similar about this, but yeah, that it dropped to like 165th on the list by, I can't remember what, what year it was, but that it's, it's effectively dropped right off you were not yeah i saw it down in like being born the 600 level range like it was way 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 down uh, anyway anything for for, for you you and you want to share well well just on the, on that note also if if this was the same piece that that uh you're talking about that it was dane cook who's believed to initially have coined the term dane cook being that that stand-up comedian mm -hmm. who uh I, I don't know if Dane Cook's still around and doing stand-up. I guess he probably is, but that it was like back in 2015 or something that he he coined the the term Karen in a in a bit. Um, really, or, or I was least, wondering yeah, where it came yeah. from. Pardon me. I was wondering where it came from because the name does suit the kind of stereotype very perfectly. I think, um, but yeah, I was wondering who coined that first and how that particular name ended up taking on that meaning. Yeah, well, and at least that was that was what it was attributed to in this this piece that I had read on the issue. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, I I wanted to talk about very very briefly a, an an article, a great article that I had read in the Atlantic. It was one of those things that just sort of resonated with me. I, I sent it to um, a few other people, a few other lawyers I know. I suspect it would resonate with them and may even resonate with you, Cam. And it was an article titled Success Addicts. I don't know if you saw this. No, but I choose love the Atlantic. Being, yeah, well, success addicts choose being special over being happy. How the pursuit of achievement distracts from the deeply ordinary activities and relationships that make life meaningful. And, mm. you know, to tie just to tie into this, it's sort of it was kind of a one two punch. I came across a, a quote in on Twitter just before I read this article by uh, Rupi Kaur. Rupi Kaur is a Canadian poet and author. She's the writer of Milk and Honey, perhaps if, you, if you've heard of it. Uh, and the quote was, I measure my self-worth by how productive I've been. No matter how hard I work, I still feel inadequate. And so I read that and thought, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I know where you're coming from. And then almost immediately afterwards, I read this, uh, this Atlantic piece talking about success addicts. And what's really interesting about the articles, it sort of creates a correlation between addictive behavior and the need to be successful and that they sort of tap into the same parts of the brain and that for a lot of people, that that idea of getting that fix, that hit of being successful 
it's very, very akin to, you know, the addictive behavior of an alcoholic or, or a drug addict. This subject may cut a little close to the bone for some people. Um, I, I, I can't wait to read it. I have not seen it yet. I mean, I mentioned I do like The Atlantic. I think they just do amazing journalism and write-ups. Um, and I, I, It's one of the publications I pay for every year. Um, but, but yeah, I, I can see this. I think I know people who w- could be described um, this way. And I think like even to some degree, and I, I, I wouldn't say I'm successful, but I think at least in, you know, focusing on work or trying to be as productive as you can and trying to be as valuable as you can, you know, I was thinking recently, like in my own job, I mean, I'm waking up early morning uh, on Saturday and Sunday to deal with sort of, you know, media issues or, or things going on. And, and there are times I think I, I look at, you know, photos of, of, of people back in Vancouver or Victoria, and I can see like people are going on weekend trips still, even despite COVID, they're going up to Whistler, or they're taking time to go here or there up to Tofino or, you know, these kinds of things. And I think, why am I doing this? Like, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't need to do this. Uh, but it's, it is giving away a lot of sort of time for family, time for friends, uh, time for sort of a, a more, more fully realized life in the name of productivity. Uh, and I think that is a problem for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, tell me if this resonates with you. This is just one of the quotes I wanted to read from, from the article, um, talking about success and how success is Sisyphean quote, the goal can't be satisfied. Most people never feel successful enough. The high only lasts a day or two, something psychological or something psychologists call the hedonic treadmill in which satisfaction wears off almost immediately and we must run on to the next reward to avoid the feeling of falling behind. Okay. That's, I mean, that's my wife. <laughs> that's, that's who that describes. Uh, I, I definitely don't have that. Like I, I, I could, I could walk away. I think, uh, I, because I'm, I'm I, like, personally speaking, I am very content, uh, you know, working on websites or dealing with tech gadgets or writing a blog, like all of that kind of stuff I find enjoyable and I can do it by myself. Like I, I don't feel that kind of, I'll never amount to, or that, that someone who's chasing success, the way you're describing is it's like a, a, a they're never satiated, you know, no matter how much they well, do yeah. or how much they achieve. And, and that's a very sad place to be, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and and that's precisely the point, right? That it's it it is a Sisyphean endeavor. You're never you're never going to get there, right? The mm-hmm. second that ball that boulder reaches the top of the hill, it's just going to roll right back down, and you're going to have to go through the exercise again and again. And or there again. is no top of the hill. You think there's a top, but you just keep looking up. It's never ending. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or 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 there is no top of the hill. You're right, but I mean that the sacrifices that that people make. And one of the things that 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 again sort of resonated with me about this was this idea that, well, you know, anybody can be happy. Not everybody can be successful, whatever no, that that wrong. means to you, and that therefore somehow, you know, there there's almost like a hierarchy that the people who are happier are somehow lower on, you know, this sort of ranking of, of hierarchy than those who are actually successful, that it's somehow it's, you know, you're better than to be successful. And, uh, I think that's just incredibly, incredibly problematic, particularly because of how those individuals most likely are defining success. And again, everybody, everybody defines success in their, in their own particular way. But for that individual who is quote unquote, happy, I suspect they might also look at themselves and see themselves as successful, despite the fact that um, they may not tick off all of those other boxes that we we typically associate with great success. Yeah, this is something we could spend a long time talking about because it is a, a very interesting uh, subject. And I think a lot of people would, would, would resonate with it, I'm sure. Yeah, so send that over to me, Ewan. I'll throw it in the show notes and, uh, and put it online. Uh, anything... Anything else you want to mention before we sign off the first show of August 2020? I think that's it. That's all I got. Other, Actually, you know what? Just quickly, very, very quickly. um, I saw there were a number of articles posted over the weekend. This was, this made a lot of, a lot of headlines in Canada about the two Michaels that are still being held captive. It's, it's now been 600 days. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael Coverig, Michael Spaver. Yeah. And for, you know, for people who aren't um, aware 
uh, of this story to, to, to seek out some of the, some of the media, some of the stories around it. It's, it's a really, it's a, it's a tragic story. It, it's, it's ongoing and um, I hope we can get them home soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on the topic of China, I actually finally threw up a very short blog post this week uh, on Taiwan. Uh, So if anyone's interested in following what China's up to uh, and or are concerned about some of the things China's up to, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. All right. Well, you and we've uh, we've made it into our fifth month. This is August. It's uh, it's been it's been a fun, fun road so far. Um, so thank you, uh, everyone who, who, who's listening. Uh, it is um, it is a treat to have you listening to our show. Uh, and it was great having uh, Edward Siegel uh, on the show as well today. And I, I hope we can get him on sometime in the future as well. So if you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. Uh, and you can also follow us on social media at PR Law Podcast, PR Law Podcast, all one word. And that's on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. That's the account name across all those channels. And you can also subscribe to the podcast on YouTube as well and support us on Patreon, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of ways to touch base with us. Lots of ways to to get a notification of a new episode uh, and lots of ways to show your support as well. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. Cam and Ewan, strong guys.